So you guys, it has been a super rich study so far. I, for all of you guys that have been kind of been able to be a part of it and, and, and walk through it, uh, man, it's been a rich study. And something that we're doing uh, through this book is that I've asked the board and they kind of, they, they kind of like asked me to ask them <laughs> uh, to kind of like share the wealth a little bit, to, to be able to like get some more voices involved and get some more, uh, you know, conversation happening. And to be honest, man, we have a board and what's the board? The board is a board of what I consider to be elders. And we all know from scripture, what are elders supposed to be? Apt to teach. It doesn't mean they have to be great teachers, right? None of us are, but it's, it's one of those things of like, they have to be apt to teach. And the fact is, is it's been awesome to go through and hear these different perspectives from Steve and from Chad and from Mike and from Peter. And it's just been awesome. If you guys haven't had an opportunity to hear some of these other messages, man, go back and listen to them. There's just some amazing gems of, and tr- gems of truth that, they, that God's brought out through the scripture, specifically through the personalities and the people that have been teaching. And I've been blessed, you guys, so blessed to just be able to be a part of it and to dig through this together with everyone. And so I just want to encourage you, man, just keep plugging through with us. We're going to continue to kind of go through that, this book, and see what that's like. But so far, it's been really awesome. So tonight, you guys, we're going to be taking the next step in Israel's timeline. And right now, remember, they've been at the base of Mount Sinai for quite a while now, right? A few chapters. They've been sitting there. And so this is one of those things where here they are, they're at the base of Mount Sinai. We know already in chapter 20, right, they kind of arrived, and then God was like, let me blow your mind, and he spoke to all of them all of them from the, from the top of the mountain, right? And they're at the base. And what did they say after that to Moses? Yo, dude, you, you go deal with this God. You go deal with Yahweh. Like that freaked us out. We don't want anything to do with that up close. Remember? And so they were, then there was like this whole like barrier put around the mountain that God said, yeah, don't come any closer than this. If you do, you're going to die. And so we see all these things that we've been walking through And we've heard the Ten Commandments. We've heard this book of the covenant, all the different rules that were laid out about different things. And there's more to come, by the way. But tonight, we're going to be looking in chapter 24 at this sealing, the confirmation of the covenant that they've they've been walking through. Remember, they've already given verbal consent back back a couple chapters ago. Do you remember that? When they were so kind of like quick to be like, oh yeah, we got this, God. We're with you. And we talked then about the fact that I'm like, wow, that was a pretty quick uh, answer to a really huge question, right? Well, we're going to see it again tonight. So verse 1 of chapter 24 says this, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So I want to stop there for just a second. So God calls up Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Who are they? They're Aaron's sons. They're not going to be on the scene much longer. We'll get there. The 70 elders of Israel. Most likely, you guys, these were the men. Do you remember when Moses' father-in-law was like, yo, this is too much work for one man. Like, you are doing way too much, so you need to appoint elders. This is probably those elders, or at least some of those elders, right? We're talking a million-plus people, maybe even two to three million. Like, it's a lot of people, right? So this is tons of people. So there's a smattering here, at least 70 of the elders of Israel, 
And like I said, most likely these were already people that were already leaders amongst the people. They were already people that were probably in the process of judging. And so they were part of the leadership that had been set up for the people of Israel already. And God told Moses, hey, those, that group is supposed to follow you up the mountain a ways, right? Halfway up the mountain, let's say, we don't know, up the mountain a ways. Remember, there was that barrier for everybody. Everybody was told, don't go past this. Now God's saying, okay, that's true for everybody except Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and these 70 elders. You're supposed to come up further, and you're supposed to stop. And then Moses is going to be called up even further than that, right up to the mountain, up onto the top of the mountain, or up you know, near the top, whatever. We don't really know. We can find out. You guys can ask Moses how far up the mountain he went when he got there, when you get to heaven. But only Moses was supposed to get there. Why? Was Moses like some special, amazing, holy saint? No, Moses was a murderer. Moses was a pretty screwed up guy. When God said, hey, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go talk to Pharaoh. He's like, I don't talk so good. Don't pick me. Moses doubted. Moses had a lot of issues. Why am I saying all that? Because we like to turn these people into something that's unattainable so that we are then not, at, not going to ever think that in our hearts or in our minds that God might not ever ask something of us that's hard. Don't we? Yeah. I mean, we could never be like Paul. Who was Paul? A murderer. Or at least someone that consented to people being murdered at a minimum, right? A guy that was like hell-bent on killing Christians, on taking them out and ending this whole thing. And God's grace and forgiveness was on his life, and God did amazing things through him, not because Paul was some special, huge, holy saint, but because Paul the human submitted his life and, and submitted to what God had for him. That's the key to tonight, you guys. That's the key. That's the thing I want to drive home. God desires for us to all be in a relationship with him where he continues to call us up closer to him. Do you know what that requires of us? Not some special level of holiness. What it requires of us is a submission to him and a submission to his Holy Spirit. He does the work of sanctifying our lives and the process of all that. So Moses was called up. God gave Moses special access to himself and everything that God was going to speak and intimate, right? Give to Moses. He gave him the Ten Commandments. We're going to read about that in a couple, maybe next week, I think, right? But the thing is, is that all those things that are happening, that was Moses' job. That's the job God had given to Moses. It was Moses' privilege to be able to do that, but it wasn't because Moses was some special guy. It definitely had nothing to do with the fact that Moses was saved by Pharaoh's daughter and lived in a nice, cushy palace for 40, 40 years of his life. It definitely had nothing to do with the fact that he lived like a hermit <laughs> tending sheep for another 40 years. It had nothing to do with any of it. It had only to do with the fact that Moses, in his life, said to God, okay, fine, even through doubt. Yeah. It's kind of encouraging, isn't it? Yeah. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, what? All the words that the Lord have spoken, we will do. Oh boy, will you? <laughs> and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars 
according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, right? The stuff that he had just written down and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, (laughs) all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. First off, you guys, Moses came and he told the people everything God had said. He reiterated all the rules, basically. He reiterated from like chapter 20 to chapter 23 of what we're reading. That's the stuff that he talked to them. He's like, remember, God said this. God said there will be no other gods before him. God said, don't steal. God said all this stuff. He taught us what it looked like to follow him and to, to like love him and put him above all. And he taught us how we're supposed to act with one another, right? Remember what we talked about. The first four commandments fit very neatly into what Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. From 5 to 10, fits very neatly into love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus wasn't making some brand new commandments. He was saying, here, let me consolidate it all for you. (laughs) Do we do that perfectly? Can we say, behold, or I'm sorry, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Can we say that? Oh, no. What hubris. (laughs) This is a massive amount of hubris, wasn't it? You guys, here's the deal. Two things. Number one, I don't think they truly grasped who they were talking to yet. And maybe never did they. I think some of them did. But I think the mass majority of them didn't grasp who they were speaking to. Remember, like Chad has brought up a couple different times, and like we've looked at, where did they come from? This polytheistic culture of Egypt, right? What was all around them? polytheism. There was multiple gods, and, and it depended on which god was the most important in the moment, right? Just like it was even in Rome, right? We had the Temple of Diana, and we had all these different gods that they worshipped, Apollos, and all these different gods. But this is way before all that. So my point is, though, in Egypt, we had Ra, right? We had uh, Seth. We had all these different gods, and we looked at the fact that even the plagues, God was specifically, Yahweh was saying, your God is puny. Your God is not real. Let me show you how unreal your God is. I am going to crush you with these plagues, specifically in a way that makes sure that when you go to pray to your God, I'm coming against that God. Mm, yeah. Right? That, but that's the culture they had come out of. And so I can imagine a good many of them are like, sure, we'll promise that to you, just like we promised to Ra that we're going to do this, and just like we promised to Baal we're going to do this. And some of them were probably that way. We, look, you guys, we cannot have this like incorrect image of the Israelites. My wife and I had the privilege in uh, Philadelphia when we were down there one time, we, were, we went to see the Rocky statue, which, by the way, is no longer at the top of the stairs, which is sacrilege. <laughs> because you're supposed to run up the stairs and be like, Adrian! <laughs> now it's at the bottom of the stairs. I don't know what kind of nonsense that is. Anyway, has nothing to do with it. If you stand at the Rocky statue and you turn around, you will see a museum. And guess what we saw scattered across the front of that museum in, in big, bold letters, Dead Sea Scrolls, here. And we were like, whoa. And so we took the kids in, and we got to see 
pieces, you know, obviously not a lot of it, but just little fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls and, you know, one whole psalm was there and, and the parchment was there and they had all this different stuff. But you know what they had a ton of? I mean a ton, like probably hundreds, gods, little idols. And they had all different ages. And it was cool because I'm listening and at the time I was still going through college, so I'm like, I'm taking church history. I'm like, oh boy, that's, that was like during Judges and that was... That was in like Kings and Chronicles era. And that was, it was all throughout. You know? So this wasn't something that they like suddenly got a hold of it and never stopped, never started. I mean, obviously, guys, why did all, why do we have so many prophets that are like, stop doing what you're doing? It's because of those idols. It's because of the stuff that they were doing. So they didn't get it. But this group here, man, they had some hubris. They were a little arrogant in their thought. The best reply they could have had is, oh God, we cannot do this. There's no stinking way we're going to do this. Would you help us? You're the only way we're ever going to get through this. Obi-Wan Kenobi is not our only hope. You are. You're it. We need you. Please. That would have been the best reply. It makes me wonder what God might have done. Let me introduce you to this guy named Jesus. (laughs) But no, they thought they were going to get it. They thought it was going to be easy. Can I just challenge us a little bit here? If we went around the room and I asked, man, are you good or bad? I bet most of us would be like, pretty good. Now, we know the scripture, right? None of us are good. Our good works are like filthy rags. We know all that, but I'm not. let's get rid of the Christianese and get real deep, 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 deep down inside of you. You're like, I'm not in jail for murder. I'm not a serial killer, right? I'm not, I'm not, I don't punch people in the face randomly. I don't, yeah, very often. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't just curse people. I don't do all these things that maybe I used to do, whatever. Like you would overall say, I'm a pretty good person. But the reality is, you guys, I think it's good that there's scripture in the Bible that says, man, your good works are like filthy rags. There is not one that's good, not one. Because why? I think it's good to get that in our head because the reality is it gets us back to the cross where we're like, oh, Jesus, I need you. You're it. I can't do this on my own. Christians, too many churches, too many people in church, too many people that genuinely know the Lord still somehow walk around like they think they're good, like they think they've got it pretty figured out, that they're good. And I feel like it's the same hubris. I can do this. No, you can't. No, you can't. It's those type of people that are like, well, I could, I'm good, but I'm not Paul. I'm good, but I'm never going to be Moses. I'm good. They make all these excuses. Why? Because deep, deep down there, it's all about them. What can God do with someone that's like, I'm not good, but you are good, God? He can do a ton. He can like do amazing things through people that have a heart that recognizes who they are, but even more importantly, knows who God is. That's the life that I want for me. That's the life that I want to see our church living because I think that life is going to impact those around us in a real way. So notice, you guys, I want you to notice this. Notice that Moses goes and he writes everything down. Do you guys know that Moses was a record keeper? Think about this. He spent 40 years in court in Egypt. Do you not think that he didn't see scribes daily coming into his stepdad, the Pharaoh, and writing stuff down? Do you not think that he was a well-educated man? 
He wrote stuff down. He wasn't just like, you know what? Like, I'm just going to let this be passed on orally. No, I'm just going to hope I remember everything. No, he's like, I need to write this stuff down. I got to get it down on paper. I'm a note taker, man. If you went into my desk sometimes, you can tell how uh, far behind I am on all the, my little tasks because I have a little sticky, yellow sticky pad note. And my desk would be like, pop, 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 like 20 sticky notes. <laughs> it's an amazing day whenever I get like eight of them or 10 of them gone. I'm like, pow, 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 throw them away. Woo! But if I don't write them down, guess what they are? Not in my mind. They're gone. They've gone the way of the dodo. They don't exist to me until someone reminds me. Right? Why am I bringing this up? He wrote it down, you guys, and I think this is important. So often, people want to denigrate the biblical text that we have. They want to get all over it. They want to be like, well, I mean, it was just a bunch of oral traditions passed down. No, it wasn't. No, it was not. This is not just a bunch of oral traditions passed down. This is a well-documented, as a matter of fact, the most well-documented book ever. We have, the, I mean, I need you to hear this. It's the truth. Homer's Iliad. Do you know how many copies we have of Homer's Iliad? Three. Three copies of Homer's Iliad. Pieces of it, actually. Historically, do you know how accurate that book is looked upon as? Extremely accurate. Extremely accurate, even on three copies. Guys, we have thousands of copies of the New Testament books. Thousands of pieces of evidence thousands. As we get back into the Old Testament, there is scroll upon scroll. Do you understand the importance of this document that we have here, this 66 books that we have here, and how well-preserved and well-documented that it is? You guys, it's been well-researched, and it's continually being researched, continually. And also, you guys, it's highly critiqued. It's probably the most highly critiqued book in all of history. Listen, there was a lot of Higher criticism, that's the name that they gave themselves, which is also an arrogant thing. In the uh, 20s and 30s, whenever we gained all this enlightenment and we knew so many things, right, and psychology came on the scene and we're like, well, Isaiah probably isn't true. It's probably written by another guy named Isaiah down the road. And he just looked back in history and wrote all this stuff down. That held until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls and we found an entire copy of the book of Isaiah. And guess what? Extremely accurate compared to what we already had written down that was dated before before all the stuff, that, like it was before Jesus and it was before all that stuff. Do you guys understand the level of accuracy we, accuracy we have? And we're still finding, you guys, we have a well-researched, highly critiqued book and it has stood the test of time and it continually not only is proven as accurate by archaeology, but it's being used to prove archaeology, to, to go find stuff in archaeology. This document, in all scholarly circles for the most part, even by atheist scholars, is viewed as a very accurate document. They might not agree with everything in it, but the veracity of the scripture itself is, is, is held in high regard, you guys. I need you to hear this, because many ignorant people will be like, oh, this is a bunch of oral tradition. Take them back to Exodus. Let's go back pretty far back into the beginning, where we see a highly educated man writing it down. Moses, why did he write it all down? He knew that a verbal agreement wasn't enough for the covenant that God was making. He wrote it all down. Think about this. Can we just now, can I buy a house on a verbal handshake? No. No. You need documentation, right? 
no different. We're not new. We're not novel. This is something that's been going on for years and years and years. Now, though, thank God, we don't have to do what the Jews do, which is kill a bunch of things and scatter blood all over the place. We don't have to do that part. That's good. My house would be stained red everywhere. (laughs) But what does it say? He went, he wrote down the words, and then it says he woke up in the morning and he went up and he built an altar. Remember what God had specified about the altar? It wasn't supposed to be of hewn stone. It wasn't supposed to be man-made in the sense of like, look at how beautiful my altar is. It was just meant to be a bunch of rocks piled on top of itself, right? That's basically what it was. There was specifications, and it wasn't to be so high that they were going to have to walk up and show off what was going on underneath because they didn't have, you know, fruit of a loom back in the day. So God said, man, look, you're not to be showing off yourself as you walk up there. So that doesn't happen. So it was an altar, right? Just a bunch of rocks. And then he built these 12 pillars of rocks to represent the tribes of Israel. And then, did you guys see there that it said he sent out the young men to sacrifice and give offerings? Why didn't he send out the Levites? Because they, they didn't exist yet, <laughs> right? We don't see Aaron and the Levites coming on the scene. You guys, they were not tasked and uh, you know, ordained into that priesthood yet. That happens in Leviticus chapter 8, if you guys want to go read it. So this hadn't happened yet. And so Moses is like, look, let's get these young guys. Why young guys? Well, they're going to have to do all the heavy lifting of cutting these animals apart and putting them on the altar and doing all the stuff that they were supposed to do. But as they bled out these animals, as they did what God had called them to as far as sacrificial, the sacrificial system, he took half the blood and he put it in the basins and he threw the other half onto the altar. And I need you guys to hear this. Why did he throw it on the altar? The altar was a representation of God himself, as close as they could get it at that moment. And so that throwing of blood on the altar was essentially binding God to the covenant. It was God's way through Moses to say, I'm in this covenant. I agree to this covenant. I'm with you in this covenant. Why was the blood in the basins? Well, we read that, man, I want you to see. We read that he put it in the basins. We read that he threw it on the altar. What was the next thing in verse 7? Then he took the book of the covenant and read it again. He was telling these people, listen, this is it for real. We've given you verbal confirmation. You've given verbal confirmation, but now we're signing the document. Are you guys really prepared for what you're about to enter into? Do you understand what you're entering into? He basically was giving them that one last opportunity to be like, understand, get it through your head. This matters. And so he read it all. And again, they're like, we got it. (laughs) Yeah, where do I sign? And so what did he do? He threw it. It says that he threw it on the people. Now think about this. This is, this is what a lot of scholars believe, and I, I think it might be true, is that I believe he probably took the blood and threw it on the 12 pillars of stone that represented the 12 tribes. Maybe he did go around and throw it. That's a million plus people. I don't know what that looked like. Either way, he put the blood on the people, either through representation on those 12 pillars or literally went around and threw blood on everybody. But either way... That idea of the sprinkling of blood, you guys, was a requirement for the covenant to be sealed. By the way, nothing's changed. Moses did that. And the reality is, you guys, the standard is no less the same for us, is it? The people had agreed to enter into this covenant. The blood of the new covenant that Jesus made, you guys, he bled out of his own body. He was covered in his own blood. 
all throughout Scripture, it talks a lot about in the New Testament this idea of that it's the blood of Christ that saves us. It's that covenant that we agree and enter into with Jesus Christ that, that saves us. Nothing has changed. It's just that we don't have to go around and sacrifice lambs because the perfect lamb was sacrificed for us. But flip over with me, you guys, to Hebrews chapter 13. I need you to hear this. Just like God was asking the Jews and saying, hey, listen, here's the covenant I'm making with you. You need to follow the law. You need to follow the law. That's your job. Now, I've got ways of grace that I'm going to put in place for you to be able to sacrifice when you screw up, not if, when, (laughs) right? He did all that, but I need you to hear this, guys. The standard that God set was perfection for the Jews at this point in Exodus. He said, follow my law, obey me. That standard has not changed. I need us to hear this, guys, because in the modern-day church, it's turned into this thing sometimes, I believe, where we're using God's grace as a doormat. Because we're like, hey, we got some grace, we can do this. No, you can't. No. I mean, technically you can. Technically. You can't outsin God's grace. But I'll tell you this. If you have even one shred of understanding of what Jesus did for you in your life, and that's still your heart, I would sincerely question your Christianity, your salvation. I mean that. Because the more I study God's word, the more it convicts me. And the more it convicts me, the more I want to follow it and follow him. And the more I sin, the more I'm, I'm just falling on my knees in repentance. And the more I'm asking God, Lord, would you take this stuff out of me? God, would you remove this garbage out of my life? Would you stop me going down this path that I am so quick to get on? Hebrews 13, verse 20. You guys, our entire lives depend on the blood of Christ. And that's what the author of Hebrews, Paul, (coughs) said here in verse 20. He said this in chapter 13, verse 20 of Hebrews. He says, Now may the God of peace, who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, I'm sorry, who brought again from from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good, everything good, that you may do his will, uh, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to read that one more time. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. The whole point of it, you guys, is so that we would walk in submission and obedience to him. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, not in our sight, in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Man, you guys, I'm trying to draw these parallels because the reality is another thing that you hear a lot, and I've heard it even in Christian friends of mine that I know and love, and they'll say, like, I don't really look at the Old Testament too much. I'm like, why? The redemptive thread starts in Genesis and ends in maps. It ends... At the end of Revelation, it's all the way through. 
It's all pointing to Jesus, everything. The sacrificial system points to Christ. Man, when we start looking at the layout of the tabernacle, it points to Christ. Everything in it points to Christ. It points to the Messiah. So let's keep reading. Verse 9, it says this. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Abihu, what a name. (laughs) And 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So now that the covenant covenant was sealed in blood, you guys, this group that was told to come up, they go up, they go up a little further. And the group that was called to venture a little closer did so. But we always need to remember this, you guys. God never contradicts himself ever, right? If he did, he would cease to be sovereign. He would cease to be all-knowing. He would cease to be immutable. He would cease to be a lot of his characteristics that we read all throughout scripture. So he can't do that. He cannot contradict himself. And what does God's word tell us? What did he tell Moses? You can't see me. You'll die. So what does he mean here? That they saw God. Well, we see in a lot of Old Testament places, we read about this idea of prophets specifically, a lot of times seeing kind of the, 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 you know, the likeness of God. So they saw God, but it was like blurry or it was like so shiny they couldn't really make it out. And it was like one of those things. And we know the burning bush, that was God showing up and talking to him. And we know Abraham probably was seeing Jesus a lot of times, who, by the way, is God, right? So we have all these different times when God would show up in different ways. But when it was like God the Father, when he was showing up, he didn't show up. And I mean, it would have wiped out everybody. They would have all died. We cannot stand in his holiness, in his presence that way. So let's look at this. Isaiah 6.1, if you guys, for you note takers. Isaiah 6.1 speaks about this. Numbers 12.8 speaks about this old idea of the likeness of God. But I want us all to flip over to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26. Think about what they said they saw. They saw pavement and basically his feet. <laughs> That's what they saw. They kind of saw like through this pavement, which they said was clear as sky, right? So imagine seeing when you see a satellite flying in the sky or when you see something like that, you're not seeing this. I can't look up and be like, oh, let's go 10 solar panels on that that thing. No, I just see a blip of light floating in the sky. I'm not saying it was like that. I'm just saying this wasn't like, hey, God, how are you? How are you doing? Hey, let me shake your hand. This was like something that they were seeing. He was above them. He was standing above them, but they were he was giving them an opportunity to at least get the likeness of him. And so let's read here. What did Ezekiel see? Verse 26 of chapter 1, Ezekiel says this. And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Apparently we're going to see some blue up in heaven. And seated above, the like, uh, seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist. So Ezekiel couldn't even really figure out like where he began and ended other than he kind of looked human, right? I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. 
and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day, so basically like a rainbow of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. What did Ezekiel say? It's beyond my comprehension. (laughs) Think about that. If God's willing to show that to somebody, and that's not going to kill you, but it makes you fall flat on your face, it's that idea of keeping the balance of all of Scripture when we go back and we say, they saw the God of Israel. What do they see? They didn't see the God of Israel the way it reads here. It wasn't quite that simple. We see throughout Scripture that, man, who knows what they saw? But what they saw was awe-inspiring, right? It was shocking to them. As a matter of fact, it was so shocking. I want you guys to hear this. Verse 11, it says, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. What were they saying? They're like, that thing right there could smush me like a bug. That's what it's telling us. They're like, the fact that God, Yahweh, is there. We kind of see that he's there. We can see through. We see kind of his feet. And we see that he is far beyond us and that he is much bigger than us. And the fact that he is not laying hands on us right now and going, is because he's a gracious God. That's what Moses was writing down. And I love it because guess what? We see something here. We see that Here they were, and what was the way that any time these sacrifices were made and any time a covenant was made? Do you guys remember the covenant God made with Abraham? He's like, hey, man, you do your part. Cut these animals in half and lay them, and and they would walk through it. And what did God do? He put them to sleep because he's like, you're not going to keep your end. So I'll walk through it on my own, and I'll make a covenant with you by myself. But then what did he tell Abraham to do? Cook it and eat it. Because that is part of the completion ceremony. I wish we could do that when we bought a house. Like, hey, man, let's have a barbecue. That'd be sweet. I don't want the bloody part up front, though. So what did he do with some of the offerings? Well, they ate it. They ate it in God's presence. Isn't that cool? They ate it in God's presence. They broke bread together. It's pretty awesome. Verse 12. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone, with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. He's like, oh, these people. (laughs) Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So Moses and Joshua, they went up further up the mountain, right? If this, this group was halfway up the mountain, they're like, hey, man, go down and kind of take care of the people. Moses, or uh, yeah, um, Aaron and her are with you. Let them deal with the disputes. Bring it to them. They're the leaders while I'm gone, basically. And so they take them down. And they're not there to wait there. They're not to come up any further. And then Moses grabbed his assistant, Joshua, and they went up a little further. And they waited in the cloud, in the mountain, for six days. I love that picture. As I was studying this, I'm like, 
Man, God, how awesome is it that you said, hey, come up a little closer to me. Come up into my presence just a little bit more. And I'm not just going to give you what you need and get you out of here. No, I want you to sit here and wait. Just sit with me. Hang out. Rest. For six days, man, what a beautiful picture. And I need you to hear this. Joshua, you guys, at this point, was Moses' assistant. I think it's a deep and beautiful thing, personally, to see the relationship that Moses had with Joshua. Don't you? Who was Joshua? Was he some special, amazing guy? No, he's just a human being. Right? Good leader. He grew into one. But do you know what was really definitive of who Joshua was? He was a guy that was like, man, I'll tell you where I want to be, Moses. I want to be where God is. I want to be in God's presence. Why was Moses picked as the assistant? Not because, or why was Joshua picked as the assistant for Moses? Not because Moses did a talent search and came and found him and his LinkedIn was better than everybody else's. <laughs> Do you know why a lot of times people find themselves in a position of leadership in church contexts or in spiritual leadership in any context? It's because they're willing to be there and be a part. Somebody needs to clean the toilet? Got it. What can I do? How can I help? You keep doing that all the time? You keep growing? You keep putting yourself in a place where God can see, uh, where everyone can see what God's doing in your life, you guys? If you want, if you have a call in your life to, to do something like that, how do you get there? Get in it. Don't assume it, but just get in it. As I was studying, you guys, we have two pastoral interns. Josh is one of them, aptly named. <laughs> and the other guy is a guy named Jake Grazier, the, my other fellow drummer. I didn't pick him because he's a drummer. He came to me and, and had a calling on his life. And you guys, these two guys, we've been meeting every week, and we've just been speaking to one another and seeking the Lord and reading through books and preparing messages and learning hermeneutics and talking about all this good stuff to grow. But you know what I love about the two, these two guys? I love the fact that they're like, what do you need? Let me do it. Sunday was a hot mess. And we get here and Jake's like, what can I do? How can I do it? I'm like, dude, go up and grill. Cool, got it. Josh has been coming with me every Sunday early, getting here. Bathrooms need clean? Got it. You guys, I'm not trying to toot their horns or make their puffed up big heads. I'm trying to get at the point that like, man, do you know who God is looking for? People that are like, where do I want to be? Where you are, God. I love that Joshua got this opportunity. Why did he get the opportunity? Because way in advance of this moment, he was like, I want to be where you are, God. He wasn't sucking up. He wasn't like, hey, Moses, what do you need, man? You like your coffee? How can I make it for you? No, he was just like, man, I want to be where God is. What does that mean? Right now, it means helping Moses out. It's awesome. For six days, they were able to just spend time together worshiping God, talking about life. I'm assuming these things, some of these things, right? I know they're worshiping God. They're in his presence. Excitedly praising God, you guys, for the freedom they had from their slavery. Think about that. Moses being like, dude, dude the Red Sea thing. Joshua's like, 
right? And he's like, I know, right? All I did was like put out my staff and it was like, whoa. Right? They're like, whoa, dude, God, you're so good. <laughs> Imagine the conversations they got to have together for six straight days just talking. Now, granted, I'm, listen, <laughs> listen to what I'm saying. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Yeah. It's a beautiful thing to just be able to wait on God and to spend time with God and to spend time doing that together. There's a lot we don't have time to dig into tonight, but man, I could have just taught a message just on those few verses. But my question for us is this. Is there someone in your life, you guys, right now, that you are being fed from? Someone that's speaking into your life, and by the way, that has nothing to do with your age. Who who is that in your life? And if you don't have that, can I just encourage you? Go find it. And here's the second part of that. Who are you speaking into? God calls us not just to go out and spread seed, but what's the last part of that? Go and make disciples. How do you make disciples? Well, you can't make disciples unless you're a disciple yourself. You've got to be being discipled, finding those people that you're like, man, you have something in your life. Man, your patience is far beyond mine. (laughs) Can we talk? Can we meet? Would you like pray with me on that? Would you like help me? Would you give me wisdom as I pour my life out to you and you pour your life out to me and we get to have that conversation. Man, your, you guys' marriage looks amazing and ours kind of sucks. Can we get together with you guys and like hash that out and talk about that? Can we do those things? Can we do life together? That's what church is for, you guys. It's part of the discipling process, but the reality is you are also a discipler. There are areas of your life that God has strengthened you in that you can help and come alongside others around you in real and tangible ways. And if you are here tonight and you are a Christian, then you are called to be a disciple. And if you are a Christian, you're also called to be discipling. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, that's the first step. You will never be a disciple until you know Jesus. So if you're here to try to figure it out and be good, good luck didn't work out for me. I don't think it's worked out for any Christian. That's why we become Christians. We know we're not good. We need Jesus. So on the seventh day, you guys, on the seventh day, after they had spent this time discipling and just spending time together and growing in the, in the beauty of this relationship and being in God's presence up on this mountain, God says to Moses, hey, I've called a crew of you deeper. You and Joshua came a little deeper. Moses, come even deeper. Come into me a little bit deeper. Just come in and be in my presence even more. Come on, just you. You're the only one I'm giving permission to do this. But come up. So Joshua here had the privilege of going further than everybody else, but he he just sat there. He didn't go any further. He wasn't allowed to. And so God calls Moses deeper by himself to receive what God was planning to give him. Verse 17, let's finish up the chapter. It says this, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. I bet you about forgot about them already, didn't you? (laughs) To them, everybody down there, they're like, whoa, dude, this is like Mount Vesuvius erupting. This is insane. This is like Mount St. Helens. Wait a minute. We don't know anything about Mount St. Helens, but that's what that reminds me of. 
It's crazy up here. The fire is exploding. It's nuts. It's a devouring fire, a consuming fire on top of this mountain in the sight of everyone, uh, of all the people of Israel down at the base of the mountain. Verse 18 says, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So God's glory. I need to talk about this for a second. It appeared to the people of Israel like a consuming fire. The whole mountaintop was this raging inferno that would leave nothing left. That's essentially what the Hebrew is getting at here. To them, they're like, there is no way there's going to be any vegetation left. There is no way, by the way, they're in a desert, so there wasn't much vegetation to begin with probably. But the reality is they're like, there's no way anybody's going to survive this. This is horrible in a sense. It was horrible in the sense of a awe-inspiring, right? Horrible in the sense of like, holy cow, the great and horrible day of whatever. Do you get what I'm getting at? It's kind of that use of the word. I can't think of another word. Awe-inspiring, shocking. It wasn't a pleasant and sunshiny place to be from their perspective. It was a place that they would want to avoid at all costs. And yet, in all of this unknown, in all of the ways, you guys, that God's glory was unapproachable, I want you to hear this. He invited Moses up into it. Here's the coolest part, you guys. Moses was in the uh, old covenant. Jesus wasn't on the scene yet. I need us to hear this. Do you understand that we have access to God's throne room every day? every moment of every day. Not just every day, by the way. You can go there at three in the morning if you want to as well. We have free access to the throne room of God. We have free access to come up into his presence. We don't have to be invited. If we have the blood of Christ on our lives, we have free access. We are sons and daughters of the king. He's like, dude, you don't have to ask. Come on in. I don't sleep. I'm awake. I'm ready. Let's talk. It's beautiful. And I, I look at Moses and I'm like, God, this is amazing. And oh God, if I were there, I would want to be Moses, I think. I would want to be that guy, I think, and not be the one of the Israelites. And I have no idea who I would be, but I know this because I live now and because I know Jesus, I am like Moses and I can come up into the throne room freely. And so are you. And I don't think I utilize it nearly enough. What about you? I don't think I take advantage. The fact is, there's this modern-day poet. He's actually a rap artist, but I called him a modern-day poet because rap artists are poets. This guy named Annie Minio. And he says this in one of his songs, our God's good, but he ain't safe. That's true. Our God is good, but he is not safe. I say all that, and I point that out because of this. I think the modern day Christian too often doesn't come into the throne room all the time because we realize when we get there, first off, he's going to tell us things that we are not going to want to necessarily hear because it's going to bump up against our flesh. But the other reason we don't do it too is because he might call you into something that is extremely uncomfortable. And by the way, in my 30 plus years of walking with the Lord, 
I don't think he's ever called me to something super comfortable. It's always been uncomfortable. It's always been beyond me. But it's also always been amazing. Guys, I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but I'm going to read these two verses again, and I want you to hear this. I don't want you to think about the mountain being on fire and all that. What I want you to think about is God's throne room that you have absolute access to at any given moment when I read these things. Think about this and think about who you are. Are you like the people of Israel sitting down below being like, that's unapproachable. I'm not going to go up there. That's crazy. I don't ever want to go in there. God, you're going to tell me what to do. I don't know if I want that. God, you're going to give me some calling on my life that's going to be way beyond me. I don't think I'm happy with that. I think I kind of like what I got. I like where I am. If that's you, man, the first step to getting away from that is owning it. (laughs) And can I just encourage you, repent of it. That's a weak life. Verse 17 says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. You guys, God was giving his people this constant reminder for 40 straight days that he may not be visible to them, but he's not easily manipulated. Mm-hmm. You can't tell God how things are going to be. He tells you how it's going to be. He was also telling all the Israelites, everyone, including Moses, hey, I'm real, and I've got absolute power. I'm it. I'm going to do what my will is to do, you can either choose to be a part of it and God help you if you stand in the way of it. You guys, our God is most definitely good. He is. If you ever doubt God's goodness, as a Christian, I don't see how you can because you're a Christian because of the blood of Christ, his son that he sent willingly to die on the cross for your sorry butt and my sorry butt. If that doesn't define the fact that we have a very good and gracious God, I don't know what does. We can draw near to him. And I want to ask everyone here, have we begun to see God as safe? I know that might throw some of you guys because you're like, my God's loving and my God's this. He is all those things. What I'm defining as safe is this comfortable, the thing that we are happy in, our armchair where we're sitting and watching the TV show that we like when we want to watch it because God isn't going to call us out in the middle of the night to go deal with something that we're extremely uncomfortable doing. Because I promise you this, if we go back a little bit further and you're being discipled, you're going to be in uncomfortable positions because a good discipler is going to call you out for your garbage and you're not going to like it. If you're being a good discipler, you're going to be uncomfortable because you're going to have to call them out and be like, no, what you just said is crap. And I'm not going to let you get away with it. And here's why, biblically. <laughs> what you just did was wrong. You cannot go and live with your girlfriend. That is not biblical. Is wrong. You're going to get uncomfortable. Let's go one step further, though. What about in the two in the morning when your person that you're discipling calls you in tears because some massive thing happened. You have the wonderful privilege of getting your behind out of bed, getting in a car and going and talking to them. Is that comfortable? No. 
I had the privilege in Mountain Home, Idaho, of walking through with a brother who um, had prayed for his wife to come to the Lord for over a year in our men's group. Just kept praying, kept praying, faithfully praying, faithfully praying. And she did. Easter morning, she came to the Lord, and it was so awesome. And all of the men came up and was just praising God and praying with her and just praising God. And then they went out in the parking lot of that church, and she sat in the passenger seat of the car, and she's like, I've got to confess something to you. I've had 42 affairs on you. And so then, he went through months, months, of trying to figure out why the heck God would do this. And he was like equally happy that she was saved and that God's grace was sufficient, but he didn't know if his was. And I had the privilege of taking phone calls at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., all sorts of times, all sorts of days, where he's screaming into the phone like, I'm going to freaking kill her. I can't stand this woman. I cannot believe God did this to me. What is going on? And we would meet at Walmart, and there was a couple little bricks that had some blood on it because he would just sit and punch the wall because he was so mad. And I got to walk through that with him. And it wasn't easy. And I'm not saying that to toot a horn. I'm saying that I had no idea what to say to him. Except that God loves him and God loved her. And that she's going to be in heaven. And that God forgave her and he needs to forgive. Here's the cool part, you guys. They're still married. It's awesome to be privileged, to be able to walk through things with people, but it is not comfortable and it is not easy. And I don't see my God as safe because if my God was safe, I wouldn't be put in that position. That's what I mean by safe. I know my God will protect me. I know that God is, is, is he's got us, man. If we die some fiery death, I know what's going to happen after my last breath here. I'm going to be in heaven and I'm going to be like, woohoo, sweet. That was an interesting way to take me out, God. <laughs> Kudos. <laughs> you guys, he's not safe. He's holy. Amen. Our God is just. He gets to tell us how to live. We don't tell him what's up. Right. We go through his word and we, we read it and we don't just read it. And we don't just look at it and think like, oh, that's some nice words. No, we actually take it and say, God, this is it. Make this true in me. I want to be a walking, living, breathing version of this. And I know I'm not, but I trust that you're growing me to to this. And by the way, I'll never arrive, not on this side of heaven, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try my best to submit my life to you. You guys, like I said before, too many people are relying on God's grace and using it as a doormat as they completely disregard or flat out disobey what God says in his word. God forbid, I don't want that to be true for us. Why do I say all that? Because what we're going to read in just a few chapters is what the people, that, 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 that's the people of Israel, man. Moses has been up there too long. Let's throw some gold together and make us a calf. God forbid, I don't want that to be true of our church. 
I want to be like Moses. I'm in your presence, God. You are slightly terrifying, and yet I don't ever want to be anywhere else. The truth is, you guys, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and and I know for a fact that God's grace is sufficient for all of it. We cannot out-sin his grace. But let's not be a people that is just walking in willful sin. Let's not be a people that is just walking around and saying, like, eh, whatever, I'll take that part, throw that part out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not really read the word so I can say that I really don't know and walk around in ignorance. That doesn't cut it. Because guess what God's word has said? And by the way, if you've never heard this, here it is. Now you're held to it. You're supposed to be in this reading it, not legalistically, not because somehow magically you've got to check a block. No, because it's the words of life into your life. It's the way that you're transformed and changed. It matters. Guys, let's also not forget that God is a consuming fire. He burns away all the flesh that we have. Thankfully, not all at one time. We'd all be a bunch of skeletons just like... No, I mean, he works on one thing works on another thing. Some things, man, I wish he would do it to all of it, but he doesn't. Some things he's like, and it's gone. That's true in my life. Some things just disappeared, man. Some things took a long time. My mouth, holy cow. Years. I wish I could say it's all gone. It's not. There's still plenty more that God's working on. And I'm thankful. Guess what, guys? I only know about maybe 10 things in my life that I'm like, man, these are really jacked up, Lord. I really need you. When he finally, if he ever gets through those 10, he's going to pick 10 more and be like, yeah, now let's work on these. He's never done working. I just want to have a heart that's willing to be worked on. Submission and obedience to the Holy Spirit in our lives, you guys, that's the consistent thing that God requires of us. It's the consistent thing that he's looking for from us. It's what I got out of this. I don't want to have the hubris of the Israelites just being like, oh, we got this. No, I don't. No, we don't. We don't got this. We don't have it all figured out. What I want to do is come to God's word and come to God every day and be like, man, Lord, would you show me what wicked ways I've got in my heart. Not, not if there be a wicked way. No, God, I'm actually going to take it one step further maybe than David did because he's like, God, show me if there be a wicked way. I'm like, no, God, show me the wicked ways <laughs> in my heart. I know they are there. I know they're there. Show them to me. And don't just show them to me. Get rid of them. Get them out of my life. I don't want them there anymore. I pray that's all of our hearts. And so there's a song by Jeremy Camp called Empty Me. Some of you guys might know it. This song to me is a song that I kind of come back to a lot of times when I find myself in those places when I'm like, oh, God. Getting a little arrogant, thinking a little higher of myself than I should. Mm. It's in those moments that God humbles me. And then I'm led back to this song saying, oh, God, empty me. I want more of you. I want less of me. I don't want any of myself in this. I want you to be inside of me. That's all I want. And so I'm going to, we're going to play the song. I just want us to spend a little quiet time with God on the mountain in the cloud. Spend a little time with him. You have free access. The only person that's holding you back from being in the presence of God is you. The door's wide open. Ask him to empty you. 
ask him to fill you up. Submit your lives to this quote-unquote unsafe God and trust that he's a good God and he's going to give you a good calling and he's going to give you an exciting life and I promise you two things. It will not be comfortable and it will be way beyond what you're capable of yourself. That's my prayer for us as a church, you guys. Man, Lord, we are... God, we're people of unclean lips, unclean minds. We don't deserve any of this. Yet, God, in your grace, you just poured out on us anyway. Lord, my prayer for us as we go throughout even the rest of this week. And Lord, looking forward from here, Lord, we are so finite, so limited. God, you are infinite. You are outside of time. Your plans for us, Lord, are good. Yet, God, we are so fickle So often, God, chasing after what's right in front of us, the next shiny thing, instead of seeking you. God, being a people that want the insurance from hell, but don't really want to press in any more than that. God, I want us. I want your people to be revived, Lord. God, I wholeheartedly see through Scripture and believe with all my heart, Lord, that revival begins when we actually start pressing in and submitting our lives to you. When you become the all-consuming fire in our lives, when you become the most important thing, God, forgive us for the many ways in our, all of our lives, Lord, that you aren't the most important thing. Forgive us for our fear, Lord, of what you might call us to or what you might call us to give up. God, I love what Paul says in the book of Philippians when he talks about this idea that he counts it all as literally dung human excrement, Lord God, that it's, it, it's that, it holds that little value to him compared to knowing you and knowing you more. I wish I could say that that was my heart, Lord. I, I think so many of us wish that that was our heart, Lord, and I would be lying if I said it was in every area.
God, change us. We don't want to be the Israelites down at the base of the mountain. I want to be like Moses, God, in your presence, desiring to go deeper with you. Unwilling to let discomfort and fear keep me back, Father, from you. God, have your way in our lives. Move us, God. Change us, Father. We are continually looking around here in New England, God. It is such hard ground, but God, you are a bigger jackhammer. And God, if that's when that's only when you're doing work on one person, God, you're also an atomic bomb. God, you can explode anything. Lord, you can turn granite into dirt fertile soil. You can do anything you choose to do, Father, and you you do that through your church. And so, God, help us to be a people that are ready to be used by you, obediently walking out the callings that you have for each one of us, Lord, not walking in the fear of man, but, Lord, walking in the fear of you, knowing that as we stand in awe of you, Lord God, you are going to show up in our lives, and we are going to have the privilege of watching you do amazing things through us even the more uncomfortable we get. I'm asking for that, Lord. I'm asking for that first and foremost right here in me, God. Lord, I want to be like Paul saying, follow me like I follow Christ. God, I pray that for our church body, Lord, that we would be a church that is saying we aren't special, but we're humans that are submitting our lives to God because we trust him. Because, God, I think you're going to do something special through that. I know you will. Have your way in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Awaken Great Bay in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our church or need prayer for something in your life, connect with us at awakengreatbay.com.